Hello and welcome. Today I am joined by Dr Zaf Iqbal, who is an SEM consultant and also head of sports medicine at Crystal Palace Football Club. So Zaf, thank you for joining. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Andy. No problem. So whereabouts are you at the moment? So at the moment, we're just in the hotel. So we've got an away game against Wolves tonight. Uh, so we came here last night. So the lads have just had their lunch, so they're resting up. And so this just gives me an opportunity to catch up on paperwork and uh, and uh, have this meeting. Right. Very good. So what, what normally happens then on like a, a game day? When did you arrive in, in well, Wolverhampton area? Yeah. So all away games, we tend to stay in a hotel, even if it's an away, uh, evening game. Um, the reason being is you've got to make sure that the lads get uh, a good a good day's rest and that they're able to uh, we're able to get here here in good time. So even if it's a London game, again we'll stay uh, in a hotel overnight if it's an away game. So we got here last night about seven o'clock, got up here on train, and then um, the manager will have a meeting. We'll have our evening meal together, and then this morning. Uh, breakfast, lunch, uh, manager will have another meeting and we'll have our pre-match meal about three hours before kickoff. And so our kickoff's at half seven. Right. And then do you stay over tonight as well or do you head straight back? No, we'll be going, we'll be going straight back. So uh, hopefully we've got tomorrow off. Uh, so we'll, we'll be heading uh, straight back. So there's a coach that goes straight back. It's a, it's a late one, but um, yeah, at least we'll be able to get back to our own beds. Yeah, no, very much so. And as we said before, there's there's no uh, no easy games or small games at the moment. So good luck with the rest of the running on that. Cheers. Thanks very much. Thank you. <laughs> so and then in terms of you then, so whereabouts are you from originally? So I was uh, brought up in Rochdale, just uh, outside Manchester. So although my um, my parents are originally from Pakistan, I was born in Pakistan, but I came over to the UK when I was two months old. So I've lived in the UK. Uh, practically all my life and, and the majority of my time was in Rochdale until I went off to university and so um, you probably sense I've still got a little bit of a, a northern accent and when I get a little bit excited um, that comes out uh, e even stronger. Right yeah well yeah we're just in central Manchester so very close to Rochdale Rochdale itself and so what, when you were starting to look at deciding what you wanted to do what prompted the move into medicine? Like, what, what were the motives for that? Well, it was quite a, a personal tragedy, unfortunately. So I had a sister um, who, uh, when I was 10 years old, unfortunately, she was three at the time and, and got brain cancer. So before that, my dad, he uh, really insisted that we made sure that we got a good education. Unfortunately, he didn't. Uh, both my mum and my dad uh, were labourers. My dad was a bus driver. Mum had a corner shop, and so they really uh, wanted to make sure that all their children had a decent education. So he really stressed the point that I should be the, as at that time most South Asian parents is either a doctor, dentist, or engineer or chartered accountant. And so I hadn't made my mind up, but it was, I really wanted to do, um, uh, go down some sort of education field. But I think my pathway was decided when my sister, as I mentioned, had brain cancer, um, which was diagnosed uh, when she was three years old. I was 10 at the time. And over the next six years of her life, I suppose, seeing the care that she received in hospital, uh, that's what really inspired me in terms of going down the medical route. Right. And so... Like, what point did you start to plan for that then with GCSEs, A-levels and so on? So from the age of 10, uh, I I was determined. So the teachers were quite stunned when I said from the age of 10, I was like, no, whatever happens, I'm, I'm going to become a doctor. So I was really determined to, to be a doctor at that time. Um, and right up to the age of, uh, before I got into medical school, I wanted to go into uh, neurosurgery and that was, prompted by what had happened to my sister. So I was, but I knew the first thing was really getting into medical school. So I was doing everything possible to make sure that I had the best opportunity uh, to get into medical school. And so it was just making sure you could get the best uh, best grades possible. Well, yeah, no, that is, that is young in terms of deciding that then. And so for, for that, were you, do you ever deviate from that plan or was that all the way through? No, I, I, was, I was determined. I think I'd, once I'd set my mind to it, 
um, I was I was determined to be a doctor. And as I said, at that time, uh, my only real exposure had been uh, the care that I'd seen my sister uh, receive and probably the odd time that I'd gone with my parents to the GP. But as I said, I'd got it set in my head from the age of 10 that I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to help other people um, like those that helped my sister. Yeah. And then so when you were picking medical schools to go to, how, how did that come about? Where How did you pick where you wanted to go? Well, it was quite tough um, because at that time getting into medical school and also I didn't really have uh, people guiding me. So I had the school um, careers advisor, but really, again, wasn't really that helpful. So it, it was very tough. I just had to make sure I got the get best grades possible. And I didn't um, straight away get into medical school, my first choice. So I'd got an offer from uh, Liverpool Medical School. And I didn't get into there and I went to Leeds uh, University, did medical sciences there. And so then what happened was that I did well um, at uh, Leeds and I was able to transfer onto the clinical studies at uh, St. Bartholomew's in Royal London. So I'd only managed to get three B's in my A levels and, and the offer that I was uh, the offer that was given was uh, an A and two B's. So um, as I said, when I got to Leeds, I was still determined that I was going to become a doctor. And so I, I studied and worked hard. Uh, BSc, I did well in that. And then I got uh, interviewed at Barts in the London to transfer directly onto the clinical studies there. And um, I must have done something right in the interview there. And, and uh, they offered me a place and I completed my uh, medical degree um, at uh, St. Bartholomew's in the Royal London which I finished in 99. Right. So when you go on these interviews then, so what do you think they're looking for beyond, obviously, they've got your academic achievements? What are the things they're asking you? I think your motivation, why you actually want to uh, go into medicine. They're probably looking for the qualities that uh, a doctor should have in terms of uh, being empathetic, good communicator, uh, continually wanting to learn, and uh you know being a caring uh person so i think those are the you know the key questions that they sort of ask and and, and you've got to try and give examples of that and uh any anything in your life that has shaped that and where you can give it you know your own experiences in terms of the qualities that they're looking for that you've got and giving examples of that really mm. And then so when you got to, to medical school and you were, you were working through there, did you start to formulate from the experience you were having which areas were, were more of interest? You'd looked at the euro bit, but how did that come around? Yeah, so we had very limited exposure to um, uh, neurology and, and uh, neurosurgery at that time going through medical school. But uh, I quite quickly then decided that probably wasn't going to be the career for me, more because I felt I was going to be too emotionally attached. And so I then decided that uh, from a very young age, I was very good at fixing things. Uh, my dad, uh, whenever we had school holidays, he'd always have me around the house instead of while all the other kids were out playing, I'd be doing odd jobs around the house any DIY he'd have me doing. And this, as I say, was a, from a very young age. And if there was nothing left in the house to do, he'd offer me to other people in the street if they've got any uh, odd jobs. Um, and he'd volunteer me to do that. So I wouldn't get any money for it. He'd just uh, offer me to people in the street, um, you know, to, to help out. But I was always good at fixing things from a very young age. And I quite liked the idea of orthopedics. Um, so I did a, a couple of weeks attachment with orthopedics. I like the fact that you're able to uh, help a wide variety of people from different backgrounds, not necessarily with severe comorbidities, but people who'd suddenly had a, a quite drastic change in their life. So somebody who could be playing sport, somebody who even is not playing sport and, you know, they break the leg or they fall and, and get an injury and then being able to help them return back to what they were doing before. Um, quite appealed to me and and the other bonus point is that you can have quite quick fixes in in orthopedics as well so that was the area that quite interested me and so once I'd completed my medical degree I was thinking of going down the orthopedic 
A and E and all, all the um, the rotations that are required for orthopedics. But then my career pathway took another change because I, I, I used to love playing football. And I, uh, while playing football, I got a knee injury, so I managed to do my ACL. And at that time, this is back in 2002, um, even though I was a doctor at the time, uh, when I went to see one of my colleagues, I was told that it was going to be 18 months before I could get an MRI scan. So I started uh, the conservative management of uh, physiotherapy. So I did that for six, seven months. And I was quite here I am. Suddenly you've got an injury and it was very I then um, started medicine and I did a master's in 2004 at uh, Mary's, uh, just trying to find out a little bit more about sports medicine, not only to try and help myself, but then hopefully in the future, try and help others as well. And so from then on, I, I decided that I wanted to go down the sports medicine route. And then for, for, for that as a profession, then what were the opportunities around about that time in sports medicine? Well, they were very limited uh, because uh, sports medicine as a speciality uh, wasn't officially recognised till a few years later. I think it was 2006. So that was when um, London had won the Olympic bid uh, for 2012. And as part of that bid, um, it was uh, proposed that there would be a certain number of sports medicine specialists and that there would be and it would be recognised as a speciality in its own right. So prior to that, there were probably jobs at uh, football clubs, but um, it's quite variable in terms of your responsibilities at the clubs. They were mainly run at that time by physiotherapists and the doctor's role was really probably just going in for match days and just doing the primary care stuff. And it probably wasn't until a little bit later on that's really when sports medicine started to take off and be recognised as a speciality. So I'd, I'd gone into it quite blind in the sense that I wasn't sure what kind of pathway it was going to lead me down. Uh, all I knew was that I was interested in, interested in sports medicine. Um, I had a passion for it. I wanted to learn and try and, even within the NHS, try and improve uh, sports medicine for others. So I started setting up NHS sports medicine clinics and really uh, the main purpose of it was not only to try and educate uh, myself and learn a little bit more, but it was really trying to help others. So I used to play in, in Sunday league uh, teams in London. And so I know there were lots of uh, players there who would get injured and they just literally go to any other GP. And it would just be offered some anti-inflammatories and get your GP to refer you to physiotherapy. So um, what I did was through A&E, I um, set up an NHS service by which that they could refer from A&E directly to the sports medicine clinic. And the plan was for that was to help um, come up with a better diagnosis or a more specific diagnosis and then start the initial rehab management. So even if that was just giving them some basic exercises, or we also had um, physiotherapists within the clinic, refer them to the physiotherapist so they can start the rehabilitation and return back to sport much quicker. So how easy is it setting something up like that in the NHS then? You made it sound really easy, but it doesn't, I can't imagine it would be that quick a process. No, it isn't. And I was quite lucky where I did my sports medicine uh, masters at Queen Mary's. They already had a sports medicine clinic set up there, but um, it was voluntary in the sense that you weren't paid. Um, but it was an opportunity to gain experience, but also try and help set up uh, a service. Um, so the fact is that, um, you know, it, it gave me an opportunity to actually try and uh, make contacts within A&E and also just, as I said, to process as well in terms of how we got the, uh, the patient being seen in A&E, being transferred directly and referred to the sports medicine clinic 
and then you being able to see them. So the whole plan was within three days of them getting the injury uh, or being seen in A&E, they should be able to be seen in the sports medicine clinic because as we know, uh, you know, the first week uh, or, the, or the first day really of anyone getting an injury, it's really important that it's managed uh, correctly because otherwise it can then quite uh, quickly become a, a, a chronic problem. And so how was that received then, both by the people coming through, but also just like the, the medical team and the, the, the clinical team that were involved? So it was good in the sense that the A&E uh, liked it because it meant that they could quickly refer load an MSK problem and was playing sports it gave them an opportunity to quickly refer out so they would do the initial investigation make sure it wasn't anybody that needed any intervention immediately i.e by orthopedics if it wasn't if it was a soft tissue injury um, then it was referred to the sports medicine clinic so they they um, uh, you know were grateful for that uh, the hospital itself where I was working the sports medicine clinic um, they must have also got some funding because of the fact that they're seeing a certain number of patients. So I'm sure that they were also grateful for that. Um, and then we also got very good feedback from uh, patients. Uh, quite quickly, we found that we were getting patients from all around London because there weren't many uh, sports medicine clinics in the NHS set up. And so then it was it was a, uh, we were enabled to, um, you know, uh, complete in terms of the demand that we were getting from the, the number of patients. And then I also worked alongside Dr. Ian Beasley at uh, medicine clinic set up. And really, uh, we were given a blank canvas in terms of setting up uh, an NHS sports medicine clinic. So that obviously shaped and, and helped me a, a huge amount. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I can imagine. And then for um, like for your first role in sport itself, then working for a club, how did that come about? Um, so for two years, I was doing lots of voluntary work, and so you know, starting out in sports medicine was difficult because there wasn't a set pathway. Um, so wherever there was an opportunity to do any sort of uh, voluntary work, I, I I jumped at the chance. So uh, there were local non-league clubs. So when they'd have major games, um, I'd hear through the great uh, things like the London, um, where they wanted um, uh, doctors, uh, mainly for the crowd. But as I said, uh, when I went along, I'd also meet with the physios that were dealing with athletes as well and just make the connections through that. So two years I was doing lots of voluntary work and then my first real opportunity came at Leighton Orient. So I was uh, actually it was, it was, uh, two roles. So one, one at Leighton Orient uh, where the doctor was leaving to join England rugby. And so initially I'd done some voluntary work there and then he asked if I wanted to be the first team doctor. Um, so I jumped at the chance of that. I mean, again, it wasn't um, a massive role. It was literally covering match days. But then I also took it upon myself to go in at least once a week unpaid. But that was really just to review the players. And it was for my own experience. Um, and so, again, I had some uh, good colleagues there, Dave Appenau, who's now at, uh, at Tottenham. Uh, so that was my real first role. And then there were also the opportunity to work with England youth teams, uh, mainly the... Uh, under 15, under 17 women's uh, uh, teams at the England uh, FA. And so that was doing uh, camps where they would play around Europe. And so just being the tournament doctor for the team, uh, for the camps. And so that, again, just uh, yeah, allowed me some exposure in, in sports medicine and, uh, and, and team medicine. And then from there, at the same time, while I was at Leighton Orient, I was also approached by Alistair Rattray, who had been involved with something called the FA Medical Society. And um, so this was an educational society where they'd organize conferences for other doctors and physios. And at that time, again, as I was starting out, I found it right really difficult to know who the best people to refer to, who the best people to seek advice from, 
sports medicine is obviously a very different speciality to other much more recognized and established specialties. So for example, if you look at cardiology, if somebody comes into the hospital where, you know, having had chest pain, there's a set management plan for that patient, no matter which hospital to go to. However, if somebody has groin pain, if somebody has a hamstring strain, depending on who you see, different people will manage it in different ways. So it was it was difficult for me to when I first started out to actually go, what is the right way of managing the different problems that I'm facing with? So when he approached me and said, look, I, um, I've heard you're interested in education. He's doing the he's in, he was a uh, secretary for the FA Medical Society. Would I be interested in organizing these sports medicine meetings? I said, um, yeah, why not? And, and, and that's probably one of the best things I'd done, whereby four times a year, and as I said, I've been doing it since 2006, it gave me the opportunity to organize meetings for other doctors and physios in, in the UK on uh, problems initially that I found difficult to manage. And then what I would do is seek the best speakers that I could find and get them to present. And then what that did, it helped me not only make good contact, but also learn directly from the specialist and see if it made sense to me and also it was an opportunity for other doctors and physios to ask similar sort of questions that I was that I was also asking as well. And I so said that's probably the, the the thing that I did, which I really enjoyed most. Uh, and as uh, we're still doing that now, so I've got uh, three other doctors now help me with that: um, Dr. Imtiaz, uh, Andrew Shafiq, and Sean Kamodi. And so uh, we between us. Uh, organized four meetings a year and as I said they were they're well attended and we've had um, some unbelievable speakers and, and we've been fortunate to be able to invite speakers from around Europe as well. Right so how do you pull out the, the different bits of information then if it was based on what you wanted before as the, I'm sure there'll be a lot of different insights. Yeah so I think the first thing was um, it was problems that I was facing while I was working at Leighton Orient. So there was a player who had a groin uh, issue and we saw three different specialists and all three specialists recommended surgery. But what was interesting was that it was completely different types of surgery. So even though it was the same supposed symptoms, they were proposing completely different types of surgery. And I just found that very interesting whereby most people will just take the player to one surgeon or one specialist and that specialist will say this is the treatment once the player's heard that then it makes it very difficult unless you've got an alternative for you not to go with that treatment because that's what the specialist or the surgeon is saying you've you've got to have this and what i found over the years that uh, especially with regards to groin surgery posterior wall defect whatever you want to call it is that um Quite often, a player will go to a surgeon, doesn't resolve their problem, and then they still want to fix. And then you'll go to another surgeon and then they'll do another type of surgery. And I've, uh, early on, I, I found players and I'd heard of players that were having two or three different types of surgery all for the same problem. So um, that was quite a big conference I then organised. That was one of the first meetings and I got together speakers and it's quite interesting when when I organised that conference, the main so-called specialist for uh, hernia surgery, post posterior wall defect surgery, they'd never even sat in a room together and debated this. And I I was actually a little bit I wouldn't say sneaky. Um, I, what I did was I didn't tell each of the speakers who else was attending because I'd heard that they might not attend. And so when um, the flyer went out and the four speakers were actually on there. I actually got two of the speakers said that uh, I'm not speaking. If that person is speaking, I said, well, look, we've got over 200 people attending. So um, I'm afraid that either you're going to have to attend or I'm just going to have to say that, unfortunately, you you, you pulled out and uh, people can make their own mind out as to why you pulled out. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a very interesting uh, meeting. Again, I don't think we got to the bottom of it. Um, in the sense, what what is the right way to deal uh, with um, groin surgery, hernias, uh, sportsman's hernia? As I say, there's various terms that that are used with regards to that. But 
Um, certainly from there, I know there have been other conferences specifically on on, on that area. Um, so it, it was, as I said, it was certainly useful for me. What I've learned from those meetings is that clearly there's not one way of managing a particular uh, sports uh, related injury or problem. But what really is important is that it's got to make sense, both to me, the physios and the, and the player, so that it's physiologically it's got to make sense. So whatever you're proposing, whatever treatment it is, it can't be just right. This is a treatment and nobody really questions it. You know, we see in sports medicine, lots of treatments uh, being offered and you often hear players and agents you know, who will go and say, well, have you tried this treatment? Have you tried horse placenta? Have you tried, you know, this type of injection? And I've now got quite an open mind. First, as as, as is always the case in medicine, is do no harm. But at the same time, it's got to make physiological sense. We're scientists at the end of the day. It's got to make sense, the rationale behind why you're proposing a particular treatment. If it's not making sense to me, and if there's likely to be harm, then I'm going to be strongly against that. You know, somebody's got to be able to convince me and the rest of the team that actually this isn't going to do harm. There is going to be some benefit, possibly, but more importantly, it makes sense in terms of why we're actually doing that. And, you know, some people may argue, well, what's the harm in terms of a player going abroad? If there's no harm in terms of get them getting a particular treatment or injection, well, for me, there is, because every time that player is away from you, then even while they're traveling, that means that they're not getting the right treatment. Um, and at the same time, you're not in control in terms of what exactly is happening to that player and in terms of their load and in terms of their overall rehabilitation management. So I have no issues with regards to players having treatment elsewhere, as long as there's good collaboration, as long as everybody is open and transparent. And as I say, the key for me is that it's got to make sense in terms of what is actually being done to the player. Yeah, yeah, we've probably seen a lot more of it now with the expansion of the Premier League and so on with, you know, the sort of diverse of um, nationalities and so on. Has that changed a lot since you've been involved in football? Yes. Um, so when I when I first started at Leighton Orient, um, and even when I was at um, Tottenham Hospitals, which was my next job after Leighton Orient, you know, it was a very small medical team. Uh, the core group were based, um, uh, you know, were clinicians from the UK. But then what has happened is over the years, you've got, um, because of either the manager uh, being from abroad, but also the fact that um, you know, clubs have realised that sports medicine um, it probably wasn't as well established here, certainly when I first started. And so they were looking at getting clinicians from other countries where sports medicine had been established for a longer period. So, for example, uh, around Europe and, and Australia. And so it then led to also the fact that you were getting players from other countries as well who had uh, been exposed to different uh, methodology, treatment methodology to what we uh, provide here. And so as a result, they also wanted a uh, similar sort of uh, treatment to what they would get back in their home countries. And you'd also then get an influx of physiotherapists from various uh, European countries as well. And so, as I say, certainly it's been uh, eye-opening in terms of how the same problem can be managed in different ways. But it, for me, I, you know, I, I still go back to it, even if it's a physiotherapist with a dip, from a different way of working, it's still got to make sense to me in terms of physiologically and the progressions um, and the end stage in terms of it's, it's, it's got to make sense in terms of what we're actually doing. And so, if again, if there's a physiotherapist who has a different way of working, if they can explain to me and it makes sense and they've got some not only just experience, but they can provide some evidence of why that particular methodology works, then I'm, as I say, I'm more than open to it. If you don't mm -hmm. provide that, if you don't listen, then the, the the problem that you have is that the player will go and seek it themselves or they will go and do it secretly. And if they do that, that's uh, obviously the worst outcome because then 
you don't know what's going on and then if a problem does arise you don't know if it's because of your management or because of the management of someone else yeah 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 that makes sense and then so tottenham how did that that role come about so i think there was the opportunity to um do some games at the academy and also I, I just reached out so dr charlotte cowie was the head of sports medicine there and i just reached out and said that look if there are any opportunities to cover games uh, in the academy um with the under 18s i'd be more than happy to help and so i probably was quite persistent and eventually i think um, she needed someone to cover a game and um, i jumped at the chance and so uh, one of the under 18 games so i covered that and then Wayne Diesel came in and at that time there wasn't a academy doctor and I think he needed uh, someone to do a medical uh, on a player so he just come in and the first team doctor was away so he got in contact with me because one of the other academy doctors had given him my number and so I did my I did uh, the medical on the player I met up with Wayne and then I just told them, look, I'm, I'm just doing some occasional work at Tottenham Hospital. My main work's at, uh, at Leighton Orient. And then about a month later, they uh, advertised uh, post academy uh, part time. And so I applied for that and uh, I got I got the post. And that's how I got into uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Right. So, yeah, I've had. I don't know, I've done one of these with Wayne. So he's got a lot of interesting tales and worked worked in a variety of uh, of environments. So how does the dynamic work then in terms of like you mentioned before, like physios previously would would run the departments. Like has that shifted over the, over the years? Um, it it varies from club to club, and uh, as I say, I don't think there's a right way uh, in terms of uh, or the right person, um, when I say the right person, whether it should be a doctor or a physio or, or you know, a, a sports scientist managing the department, because at the end of the day, managing the department, you're managing people, you're leading, uh, you know, uh, different uh, specialities. And so, um, as I say, uh, I've not had a problem working with uh, different heads of departments, whether they're physiotherapists, sports scientists, uh, or the doctors. As I say, it, it, it varies from, from club to club. Has it changed? It probably has changed in the sense that there may be more um, doctors and sports scientists or head of performance um, who, you know, maybe a combination of who have done both physiotherapy and, and sports science uh, who end up becoming head of departments. Because previously, as I say, I think initially always used to be the physiotherapist because uh, there was always a, the requirement for a physiotherapist within uh, a football team environment. So it was uh, natural that they headed up the department and then they pulled in uh, whichever other services, whether in whether it was a masseur or whether it was a doctor. So they pulled uh, those in as and when required. Over time, uh, medical departments have have grown massively certainly over the last 10 years and so you know with the obvious cost of uh, how much it uh, you know in terms of the money that's involved and, and then the costs uh, to the club if a player is not playing then clubs have realized the importance of having uh, a good sports medicine and science team and investing in that because it's important to get players back as quickly as possible so medical teams have expanded you know you'll find quite often there will be um anything between in a premier league team anything between three plus more physiotherapists couple of soft tissue um and then can be one or two doctors within it work working within the first team environment and then of course you've got the sports scientists the strength and conditioning coaches you can have anything between 10 to 20 people within the department um, and so you know naturally you've got to have somebody who's going to be leading that department to make sure that everybody's pulling in the same direction mm. yeah was it at that point at Tottenham then that you became full-time so I'd done six months as the academy doc and then um 
again another opportunity came up within the first team and they advertised the role and they asked if I'd uh, apply for the role and I always wanted to do, you know make sure it wasn't just handed to me that I applied for the role and and you know uh, show that hopefully I was the the best candidate possible and so I applied for the role and again um, must have done something right because uh, I got I got offered the role and so I um, I accepted I was again uh, you know I'd already been working for six months with Wayne enjoyed working with him and so the opportunity to work alongside him again and the rest of the medical team there was was something I just couldn't turn down and then who sits on the panel I were you in an interview bear in mind you're already at you at the club in this instance who's on the interview panel so you had Wayne um who's the head of the uh, the whole team uh the sporting director who's Damien Kamali at the time and I'm trying to remember I think there might have been somebody from HR as well so there was uh, there was at least three people and it was the same when I had the academy interview as well so I had the sporting director and the head of academy John McDermott at the time and so they're the ones that interviewed me uh, at the time so again it was they were really asking questions in terms of different scenarios, um, how I would manage different situations, and what my what my plans were, and how uh, you know how I could uh, contribute to the department. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's interesting, and then like for, so you go in that full time role at Tottenham. And how long how long were you there for? So I was there uh, till two thousand and ten. So. Um, uh, we just qualified for Europe in 2010, and so I was uh, I was coming to the end of my contract, and so it was coming to the point of renegotiating my contract. And um, as clubs do, they'll always let the contract run down, uh, you know, close to the end before they start uh, having any discussions. And so I was getting a little bit worried at that time as to um, Either they weren't going to offer uh, what I was expecting or uh, they may have other plans. So right at that time, uh, another opportunity arose where there was um, a first team doctor role at Liverpool. And also I was contacted by uh, someone there saying that this role has come up. Would I be interested in applying for it? So I applied for it. And to be honest, my main reason for applying for it was as a backup plan in case Tottenham no longer wanted me and also hopefully to try and put a little bit of pressure on Tottenham to say look I'm uh, I want to stay here at Tottenham you know I was based in Enfield North London which I which I still am um, I don't want to move anywhere else but it would be good if, if you know I could have a little bit of security regarding my own future and so I, I went through the whole process with regards to Liverpool uh, through two-stage interview and they actually offered me the post which then um, yeah made it quite a difficult situation because of the fact before that I hadn't even told my wife that I'd applied to Liverpool and the main reason for that was in my own head I was uh, you know I was confident that I was going to be staying at Tottenham Hotspur and my main reason for for applying for the Liverpool position was to use it as a negotiating tactic at that moment in time, but as a backup plan just in case it wasn't. Um, but the big attraction also was the fact that not only was it Liverpool Football Club, but uh, um, the head of the department at that time was also going to be uh, Peter Bruckner. And so he'd also sold it to me very well. Um, so I was starting to thinking about it. I was starting to think about it a lot more um, than I had done. And... Um, it got to a stage where the offer that Liverpool were making and, you know, the fact that they really uh, wanted me sort of persuaded me that actually uh, it's time for a new challenge. And that's when I then had the conversation with the missus, which was uh, quite interesting. Yeah, how did that go? Um, <laughs> well, it was, um, I, I think her response was, well, obviously you're, you've, you're not going, are you? And so um, I think that was her first response. And I said, look, you know, uh, at that time, 
I hadn't got an offer back from Tottenham. So I said, look, I don't know what's happening with Tottenham. They could turn around and say, OK, thank you, but no thank you. And then I'm stuck and, you know, I could be left at the end of the year, at the end of the season with no job to go back to. Or alternatively, they could back me into corner and make me an offer which, you know, um, I wouldn't be happy with, but because I'd have no alternative then. So, you know, we, we had three young kids and I rather naively, so she she then eventually said, look, you know, uh, if that's what you want to do, go. But, um, you know, there's not going to be any guarantee that we're going to be moving up. And so because it was the first team doctor and I had Peter Bruckner there as well, I was guaranteed two days off a week uh, because he'd always be there and he was able to cover. So at least I was able to come back uh, two days uh, of the week and sort of made it work. It wasn't ideal. Uh, because, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of travel that's involved in that. Um, but at the same time, I was also happy that I had Peter Bruckner there. He had my back. He was, you know, very, very supportive. The whole club was very supportive, to be fair. And so, um, although it was, it was very difficult, I'm not going to lie. It was very difficult being away from family. And as I say, I was probably a little bit naive. I, I thought in my own head that actually when I move up, it'll be, you know, the job's going to be good and it'll be um, the family will then naturally move up. But unfortunately, uh, um, as you may have heard, my, my son, unfortunately, has got heart issues. And so at the end of the first season, unfortunately, he had a cardiac arrest. And thankfully, my wife was at home. And she managed, we got a defib at home and she managed to resuscitate him. And so I think that's when I realised that um, uh, it was going to be very difficult to actually move the family up because she'd got all her support network in London. You know, she, she used to be a GP herself and uh, she'd given up her career to allow me to be able to go into sports medicine because as as you know, sports medicine in terms of it's not a nine to five job and there's a lot of unpredictability in terms of the hours that you do. And so, you know, I'm very grateful for her, all the sacrifices that she's made, you know, for me to be able to continue in, in my career. And so there was no way that I could say, no, you've got to move up. Um, and so, again, it was just a case of trying to make it work. Uh, while she, you know, while, while the family was based in London and to try and come back whenever I could uh, to actually see them. Yeah, that must have been tricky. So where were you living then? So I was living in, in Liverpool. Um, and so for the first four years, so I was there at nearly five seasons. So for the first four years, I was staying in uh, Liverpool. Uh, my parents were in Rochdale, so I was, you know, the, the, the plus point was I was able to see them quite regularly. And I spent a lot of time mainly in Manchester. And the main reason for that was that you just couldn't venture out in Liverpool. Um, you'd get recognised quite a lot. And obviously, every conversation was what's happening at Liverpool. You know, what when, when's this player coming back? So it used to be quite relentless. And as I say, I'm just a doctor and I can only, you know, I can't even imagine how, how difficult it must be for players when they're actually going out. And obviously the fans naturally want to just ask questions and, and just have a little bit of their time. But um, it must be even, you know, a hundred times more difficult for them. So I used to spend a lot of time in Manchester and, and I'd have my base in Liverpool. And then I'd, um, as I said, uh, getting into work was easy compared with down south. You know, it was literally a 15 minute commute into work. Uh, and so it was good. As I said, the only downside was that the family was uh, was 200 miles away. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. And then so is that what was the main reason for moving on from there then? Yeah, it, look, it, uh, he had another cardiac arrest uh, a few years later. I became the head of the department in the 2012 season. And that's because Peter had decided to join uh, Cricket Australia. So he joined up with them. And so I was asked to be uh, to become the head of the medical department. And uh, again, as I say, naively, I thought, yep, you know, once the kids are a little bit older, the missus and the kids will, will, will move up. And it, I think it was really where 
problems for me really started um, was in the 2013-14 season. That's the season when we almost won the uh, the title. And, uh, and then after that, uh, Brendan actually pulled me in and said, look, you know, um, I understand that your family is still down south, but this is going to be difficult because now you're going to be in Europe as well. So we qualified for the Champions League. This is going to be difficult and you really need to make a decision with regards to, you know, bringing your family up here. So again, um, in my own head, naively, I, I even bought a house there at the end of the season. I was like, no, I'm going to show the club that I'm serious about moving the family up. I'll get, um, you know, in the holidays, the family will come up, they'll see that the house is here and that, um, you know, this is an opportunity where it can work for all of us. But look, um, I totally understand, I, I, you know, with regards to why my wife couldn't move up to Liverpool because all the support network was there. And as she rightly pointed out, when we've got away games, when I'm in Europe, she needs to have that support network there. So it would have been really unfair, considering all the sacrifices that she'd made, for me to have expected her to have made further sacrifice to be away from her family in a support network, just so that I can, you know, be close to my family. So that that season there, the, uh, 2015 was was very very difficult uh, trying to manage both uh, the European games. I remember in December, uh, the whole of December, I didn't have a single day off, and so I wasn't able to go back and see the family. We were in Champions League, we were in the League Cup, and then we got an FA Cup game against Wimbledon, I think it was, and. Um, so the next day we had a day off and I thought, OK, uh, I'll be able to at least go and see the family. And what happened was that after the game, I got a phone call that a player needed to see me back in Liverpool. And I'm like, oh, God. So that call that I had to make to the missus that after 36 days, I've still not able to come, even though I'm in London, I've got to go back was uh, was quite difficult. And I think that was that was clearly it wasn't going to work and continue after that. As I said, like, you know, I had a great time at Liverpool, um, learned a huge amount, made some fantastic friends, you know, um, some unbelievable clinicians that I work with, um, you know, the physiotherapist, the sports scientist, Chris Morgan, Mark Konopinski, Jordan, Jordan Milson, again, Priya Buckner, Darren Burgess, Phil Coles, all of them, you know, Rob Price. I learned a huge amount from all those people. Um, but at the same time, I've also got to be realistic. I, I had three young kids and, um, you know, they also needed me as well. And so um, it, was, it, was, it was getting difficult where I was getting torn between the two. So uh, clearly a decision needed to be made. And so how did that, how did that culmination uh, come about then? So... Um, I'd spoken with the club and said, look, you know, um, thanks for the sport, but this is this is going to be very difficult and uh, not able to uh, continue my current role. So came back to London and the aim was to go back into, I was going to do sports medicine clinics. So uh, there were lots of clinics that had asked me in the past if I'd, if I'd come and uh, work with them. Um, so and, and also the NHS clinics that I had been working in the past. So I had roles to go back into. So as soon as I got back, uh, started doing sports uh, medicine clinics. And then I got contacted. Um, it was actually by uh, Brendan Rogers and that um, Crystal Palace are looking for a doctor. And they've advertised the post and would I be interested? Uh, so at that time, it was, I'm not too sure, because without being arrogant, I was like, well, I've worked at Liverpool, I've worked at Tottenham. I don't know right this moment in time um, if I want to go to Crystal Palace. And that, and again, that might sound arrogant, but it was more to do with the fact that I was like, you know, there may be quite a lot of work that is required there to bring it to the level where I'd worked previously. But what happened was that um, I uh, I applied applied for the the role, uh, met with Alan Pardew, and he sold it to me. He basically said that look, you know, um, he's got big plans and the owner's got plans for the club, and that I've got a blank canvas and that really he wants me to help 
develop and shape the department um, and bring it to a standard of the other top Premier League clubs. And to be honest, it's been fantastic. This is my eighth season and it's been fantastic because of the fact that the chairman, Steve Parrish, the sporting director, Damien Camoli, have all been very supportive and have allowed me to shape the department uh, almost from scratch in terms of you know, bringing the, some of the personnel, but more importantly, in terms of how we work as a department, in terms of the equipment. Um, so we've, we've got an operation manual. And again, you know, uh, a lot of credit goes to Chris Morgan and, and uh, Ed Richmond on that. And what that allowed us to do was for every single one of uh, our injuries, anything that we managed within the department was all put in there. And so what we did, we all split it up and we looked at what best practice is for each of the individual areas. So whether it be doing a signing medical, whether it be in terms of uh, pre-season screening or whether it be screening on a daily basis, weekly basis, we looked at amongst us what is the best practice that is out there and actually put it in there and try to see if it could work for our department. And the, the big plus point of that was that it then showed the club, but also the owners and agents and players that look, the methodology that we're using, the practices that we're using, we're, we're trying to look at what best evidence is out there, best practices out there. So even though this is Crystal Palace, we're trying to provide the same level of care that you could get anywhere across Europe. So that's that's what really we, we've tried to implement at uh, Palace. I've been very fortunate that I've had some very young and enthusiastic uh, colleagues who I've been able to share my experiences uh, with, but at the same time, they've also brought a lot of energy in terms of trying to bring new ideas in, whether it be in terms of screening, you know, constantly asking questions in terms of well, why are we doing this? Why don't we think about doing this? Actually, we're screening uh, you know, we're doing uh, knee to wall every day, but nobody's actually acting on it. And it's not actually changed our management in the last two years. Same with regards to why we're we doing groin squeeze every single day, because it's not it's not changed or influenced what we're actually doing. So everything that we're doing, again, goes back to there's got to be a clear purpose behind it and that we've got a clear plan of action as a, re, you know, from whatever result that we find uh, from whatever we do. So. Um, I think if you speak to the people that have actually worked at Palace and that have gone on to other clubs, I think they'd all agree that it's it's a, it really has been a great environment to work in because we're not afraid to make mistakes. It's an environment where we're not there just to survive. Quite a lot of departments, it's, it's just a case of the clinicians are, are just there to survive because they just think that, OK, the next manager is going to come in and it's just a case of keeping your head down. You know, as as John Fern, I think when I when I saw his um, at the interview that you did with him, you know, it's a performance driven environment. We're there to try and uh, get the best in terms of performance. And so you've really got to be at the edge of whatever you're doing. It's, you know, it's not just about safety first every single time. So you've got to constantly try and push uh, because every game matters, every point matters. Uh, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that you go hiding and that you're scared that if you make a mistake that you're going to get punished for that. Our thing is always being, look, let's push as long as it's, it's logical, as long as it's making sense, as long as there's open communication and everybody's on the same page with regards to that, then, um, you know, uh, you, you'll get supported along, uh, along that. And that's why I think people enjoy working. You know, if somebody goes in and just works in silos and, and does things in secret, then we do have a problem. And also, if, if somebody is bad mouthing another person within the department or undermining, certainly in front of players, then again, we'd have a problem. So I've always made it key that whatever happens, we as a team of clinicians uh, together, the department stick together and we never undermine each other in front of players because Players will always try and look for divisions. And so that's key for us. I'll always be supportive of the staff if they do the right thing. And so, as I said, I've honestly had an amazing eight years at, uh, at Crystal Palace. 
and uh, it, you know, I'm being very grateful for the opportunity. And as I've been lucky in the sense that being well supported by by the chairman and, and the sporting director, you know, there have been very difficult situations at times where you'll get a new player who comes in and has got a certain way of working or insists when they get an injury that they're going to go abroad uh, or they want their own physio coming into the club. And again, the chairman and the sporting director have been quite strong on that. And they said, look, you know, um, Zaf is the head of the department and we're not going to go against him. So you've got to convince myself. And I, as I say, I'm I'm open to new ideas, uh, but I've got to think about the whole department and, and all players and what is right for uh, for the players and, and the department. And ultimately, it's about making the right decision, not for me, but for the players and the club. And I'd like to think that the people that I work with, you know, they, they'll often see that. Yeah, and then so for you then, who do you report as the head of sports medicine? Is it the sporting director directly or? Yeah, so um, I directed the sporting director, but also Steve Parrish plays a huge role. He he likes to know everything that is going on with regards to players. So um, on a daily basis, uh, there'll be a message going to the sporting director and the manager in terms of before training and after training. So they've got an idea exactly where players are in terms of availability or if they've got any issues. And then once a week, I will do a report to the chairman. So every Friday, there's a report that goes to the chairman, which then goes out to uh, the other shareholders. So that gives us a, um, a state of play of exactly where players are uh, more with regards to those that are injured so that um, you know they know week by week exactly where a player is in terms of their injury, whether they're on track, whether there's been any setbacks. And that also allows them, if we need any additional support, then you know, it allows them to jump in as well and say, look, if there is anything else that you guys require, then as opposed to them only finding out, say, a month down the line, and then they turn around and say, well, why don't you tell us sooner? So it's great that Steve has that, you know, uh, that much interest because it then just does make it easier when we get a problem that it's nipped uh, quite early as opposed to it being much further down the line and then it becomes a lot more difficult to try and resolve. Mm, yeah, it must be really interesting because you've got like it's quite a small community, it sounds like there, as opposed to some of the bigger like American owned or Russian owned or whatever. So yeah, no, that, that sounds really interesting. So is Z ask medical questions then of you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, I wouldn't expect anything less. You know, you've got to be able to, at the end of the day, the, the club's assets. So, um, you know, always constantly anything in terms of any particular problem. So so we've got three other, the other three shareholders are American. So uh, Steve then uh, passes on the information to them as well. And, and they're always, you know, if there's anything that they don't quite understand with regards to a particular procedure or if there's a particular problem, they'll all jump in. They're not uh, shy with regards to that. And, and, and you know, they'll offer their suggestions as well. So it's also part of my role to actually um, either confirm that actually we've, we've already explored that option or why it's not uh, a sensible option in this particular case. Um, you know, and as you can imagine, as all owners, um, as is the case with all owners, they will get emails and messages from around the world. So whenever a key player gets injured, uh, you know, I'm sure that the chairman, you know, will get several messages from around the world in terms of how with their treatment, they can bring the player back in, in you know, in a tenth of the time that um, uh, their own doctor and physio could do. So, you know, and again, the chairman is fantastic. He'll pass on that message. And then I always make sure that I respond. I, I can never ignore those. I'll always respond back to the manager, uh, the chairman and explain to them in terms of whether there's any evidence or truth with regards to the treatment or, or methodology that is being proposed. Um, so again, look, because of that open communication, I actually enjoy it uh, because it, it keeps me on my toes, constantly learning as opposed to, um, you know, suddenly you're finding out that the player has gone away and had a particular treatment. I only find out about it afterwards. 
and things being done in secret. So I'd like to think that the players and the agents and the sporting director and the chairman uh, know that we're quite open as a department and that there aren't too many treatments that are being done in secret. Um, and that again, as I said, you know, there are treatments which I wouldn't necessarily, when I first started out, would have agreed with, but I've come round to understanding and that there is a place for, you know, quite a lot of the different treatments. There are some treatments which I make it quite clear that, look, there's going to be more harm than good done as a result. But there are some treatments where I think actually, even though there may not be great evidence for it, as long as it's not doing harm, and if the player feels that it's going to do benefit, then it's far better that I comply and and, and be cooperative with that. So, for example, I, I learned how to do traumal and active vegan injections, prolotherapy, uh, PRP. And, you know, you'll have some advocates of it saying that, you know, PRP is is the, you know, it'll cure everything and there's huge amount of evidence for it. And as I say, the evidence behind it, if you actually look at it, is not a huge amount. Um, uh, but at the same time, I also understand that there is a role for it. And in certain conditions, I will uh, use it because physiologically it does make sense to me, especially if I want somebody to be immobile for a while. So, for example, if it's a particular long term tendon injury or a ligament injury, then I may consider prolotherapy or, or PRP, especially if I want that particular player to uh, you know, be immobile for a while. Uh, so it can help, um, you know, in my mind with regards to that. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting, the dynamic of, of how it all comes together. And then I know you do a lot of work outside of football and you mentioned about like the, the defib that your son uses and you, you, I know you're involved in, in the, the integration of that. But how did that come about? So um, when I was in Liverpool, there was... Um, I came across the Oliver King Foundation. So there's a gentleman called Mark King, whose son Oliver King unfortunately passed away when he was 12 years old while swimming at school. And he, uh, so they, uh, his son and, and, and Mark both hardcore Everton fans. And I just came across um, a newspaper article on it. And, um, and so his father was uh, raising money to get defibs in all schools in around Liverpool and so I got in contact with them and so together we just started raising more awareness and, and, and they've done fantastic work and so what their aim was to try and make it mandatory for all schools in the UK to have a defibrillator so we set about they they set about having a petition and I just literally called upon uh, footballers and other sports personalities that I knew to raise awareness regarding the petition and within a couple of weeks, we managed to get 100,000 signatures. So it went to Parliament and they just stopped short of making it legislation. But thankfully, they, they kept pushing. I've been constantly trying to raise awareness where I can, um, you know, regarding the importance of having a DFib nearby. And last year, the government has finally um, agreed that all schools as, a uh, as of 2023 uh, should have a DFib on site. So that's been fantastic work by the Oliver King Foundation and many other uh, foundations on that. And the next thing is really we're trying to push is to try and have every school leaver or as many people as possible to learn how to do CPR and also recognise the importance of knowing where their nearest DFib is and uh, how to use how to use that. So that obviously came about from from what happened with my own family and 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 seeing how important that was. Uh, but also I, I feel, you know, there's lots of people that have helped me along the way uh, in sports medicine. And um, as I said, my dad from a young age has always taught me the importance of doing as much as you can, making a difference to other people's lives. So I feel it's my way of, of, of giving back. And so I, I find it personally quite rewarding when I'm able to help uh, others in, in, in their own lives. You know, similarly, I do quite a lot of mentoring other doctors um, where I can in terms of sports medicine who want to follow down similar pathway and then also educating doctors and, and physios. So try and do 
quite a bit of lecturing when I can. And then also other countries where sports medicine isn't as well established as it is now in the UK. Um, I'll get contacted by athletes from other countries who may not necessarily have the same setup as we have here and where I can. So whenever I get a spare moment like this, when I'm at the hotel, I'll just do Zoom uh, consultations with them and see if I can try and uh, help them. And, and on the odd occasion, there have been athletes that have, that have uh, come to the UK and uh, we've been able to help them at uh, Crystal Palace. Again, the chairman's fantastic. You know, uh, so last year we had Shaheen Afridi and uh, Fakir Zaman, who are two key cricketers for the Pakistan cricket team. So before the World Cup, they both got uh, injuries and, and they were struggling to actually make it for the squad. And the chairman and the manager both were completely OK with the players coming and using our facilities uh, for six weeks, which, as I said, I found personally quite rewarding. And, and the players were, were really grateful for that. And the staff enjoy it as well. So it's, you know, it's a different sport as well. And um, it's always interesting to see, even though they're meant to be elite athletes, the care that they get uh, is unfortunately in a lot of these countries is 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 a lot less than what we are able to provide here. And so our own staff enjoy the fact that the base at which they're starting from in terms of from a strength and conditioning uh, and movement perspective is a lot less than what you'd expect, you know, a professional athlete here. So, we, you know, we all find it quite rewarding in terms of being able to help others from other countries as well. Mm, yeah, no, that's great. Really good initiative. And I also saw that you've done some ringside medical work in boxing. Yeah, I I did that more in Liverpool and I've only, I've only had time to do a couple of fights down here. And again, um, the main reason for that was I was always interested in terms of how the cut man was able to stop bleeding quite quickly. Um, so when the boxers actually had um you know when they had the cuts across the the forehead and stuff in terms of how they're able to stop that with the adrenaline and the, and the vaseline and putting the iron on so i initially wanted to try and find out a little bit more about that and also improve my um suturing skills as well because obviously those guys would get lots of cuts and stuff so it was another opportunity to be able to do that and while i was in liverpool because i'd have quite a lot of evenings off and most of the the fights were in the evenings um, it just meant that it was another opportunity for me to uh, to upskill myself and, and 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 keep myself active. Yeah, well, I thought it might come about from having worked with the Hearns at Leighton Orient. Was that an overlap at that point? No, so I, I hadn't started at that time. So although uh, in, I had seen a couple of boxes, but that was for other issues in terms of they'd, they'd be brought in. Um, and so they were all under uh, the matchroom umbrella. So I would, on match day, I would occasionally see, uh, you know, a boxer after after the game with either a shoulder problem or a back problem, um, and so would give them my advice. But I hadn't, I hadn't specifically gone into boxing at that time. It was really only uh, when I'd gone to Liverpool and had a little bit more time to myself, that's when I started uh, doing a couple more events. Right. Oh, interesting. Hello, Zaf, I really appreciate your time today, especially on a match day. So I'll let you get back to the prep beforehand. But thank you for sharing your stories. Really interesting. And good luck with the rest of the season. Cheers. Thanks again, Andy, for, for uh, having me. Thank you. No problem.